Okay, everyone, all my notes are together. I want to see if Big Ben is with us here. If Ben is ready to rock and roll, we're going to start to kick things off here in a minute or two. Um, want to make sure that everyone understands that Masters of Baseball, we do provide uh, a, a podcast version of tonight's uh, Twitter Space event uh, that is put out on all of the podcast platforms, which allows you or those close to you or friends of you that would like to go back and and catch the words of wisdom that will be spoken tonight from Big Ben. Uh, it'll be available probably by tomorrow morning, uh, sometime before noontime here on the East Coast. Um, we have all of our podcasts, both Butch's uh, Athlete 911 Talks on Sunday evening. Last night's guest was Dayton Moore, president of the Kansas City Royals. It was a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, Twitter space event and one that you're going to want to catch back up on. And last week we had Tim Corbin uh, from Vanderbilt University and uh, several others from the past. So make sure you go and check out the podcast uh, from uh, from our past uh, Twitter space events. Uh, tonight's guest, Mr. Ben McDonald from the great state of Louisiana, the boot, as it is referred to. Uh, He is a former number one overall draft pick of the Baltimore Orioles out of Louisiana State University. He's also a member and won a gold medal in 1988 Olympic team. Uh, He spent the vast majority of his major league career, professional career, with the Baltimore Orioles and ended it with, a, I believe, a labrum issue with the Milwaukee Brewers, but currently Ben is the SEC commentator for baseball as well as the Baltimore Orioles uh, major league broadcaster, television broadcaster. We want to welcome uh, Ben in here tonight. I want to make sure that he can hear us and he's ready to rock and roll. Mr. Ben McDonald, are you out there? Can you hear me, sir? Technical me can you hear me now? I uh, can hear you now. It's a rising commercial. All right. There you go. <laughs> Walter, good Welcome. to be with you, man. You're, uh, you're one of my favorite people to uh, to visit with. And uh, looking forward to tonight. Ever since you asked me a couple of weeks ago, I've been looking forward to tonight. Well, I, I don't know if a lot of people from across the country are able to catch the Oriole games. I'm sure in some capacity they may come across you with the SEC network and all the great things you're doing with baseball. But it's a great story uh, about how you guys started with regard to LSU broadcasting and your old manager, Skip Bertman. What, can you tell us the story on how broadcasting or commentating came to be for you? Yeah, you know, uh, Walter, I I, uh, I only completed five semesters at, at LSU. You know, I uh, I went my first two years and, and then the Olympics came calling and, and we got back so late from the Olympics uh, during the fall that, uh, we were given that semester off. And then we, we rolled to my junior year and, and went two semesters there. So only get in five semesters and you're drafted number one overall. So you take off and you go play and never came back. So play, lucky enough to play nine years of, of pro ball. And I was kind of sitting around the house and visiting with coach Bertman out at a baseball game one day. He said, you know, you, you should, you should get into, uh, broadcasting. I was like, coach, I, I, I didn't graduate. I didn't go to school to be a broadcaster. He said, no, but you, you know the game, and he said you can explain it, and 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 you're funny. And I said, Coach, I don't know. So, CST was out here in Baton Rouge, Cox Sports Television, and he got a phone call. He made a phone call for me, and I hopped on. And look, I wasn't even keeping score. I didn't have a clue of how to do all the X's and O's. But if you set me up, I could talk about baseball, you know. And one thing led to another, and I was like, you know what? This is this is all right. This is this is pretty fun. So. I did that for four or five years, and all of a sudden ESPN came calling with a super regional, and I still wasn't that experienced, like a fish out of water. But I got to do that and got my feet wet in some regards. And then, of course, the SEC Network – well, actually, ESPN came calling first with uh, with a Thursday night baseball show. Then it was the SEC Network. And then for the last nine years, I've been going back doing Oriole games, you know, and uh, it's been getting more and more evolved, and I'll do like 84 – if we ever start playing, that is, and I got my fingers crossed. I mean, they they, they should tie them in a room, and, and and nobody should be allowed to come out till we get this thing done, Walter. But uh, I have a feeling it's going to get done here in the next few days. But I'll do eighty-four Oriole games as well, and so I enjoy doing that. Uh, I I don't like to travel a whole lot. I'll be honest, but once they say play ball, man, I, I'm all in, and I love the college game 
uh, probably the most. It's, it's, it's my favorite game because of the enthusiasm and the innocence of it in some ways. And, and I really enjoy it. And, uh, uh, I enjoy explaining the game to people. Walter, I'll tell you a funny story. I'm about my third year of doing it. I ran to an older lady in Walmart and she's like, you're, you're so-and-so, aren't you? I said, yes, ma'am, I, I am. She said, I like the way you call a baseball game. And of course, you know, as a, as a commentator, you're, you're learning every day too. You're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work and how you can draw people's attention. I said, well, ma'am, tell me what you like about what I do. And she's like, you know what? She said, I don't know anything about baseball, but the way you explained the game to me, I understand it. You keep it simple. And I said, you know what? That's a good point. And that was probably 20 years ago. I said, I'm always going to remember that because I may bore the person that knows a bunch about the game. But my idea of a ball game is to draw somebody in that's maybe listening for the first time and then turning the TV on for the very first time to watch a ball game. I want to draw that person in and have them come back and see us again at a later date. So I've always tried to keep it as simple as I could. And the analytical world is, is a little bit more difficult as you know, to explain. And we dive, I dive a little bit into that, but not too deep into it. But I just, I just tell the folks what I see and what I'm seeing on TV and explain the game the best that I can. Well, I want to, I want to start a little bit by letting everybody know that you are a baseball dad. And, um, you know, you've gone through the travel ball process as a dad and your son has gone through the recruiting process and plays for arguably one of the best college coaches and programs in the country. And and I want to talk a little bit about your experiences with regard to the travel baseball world. Just want you to kind of dip your toe in there and just kind of tell the experiences you may have had and things you see or would like to see done a little bit differently. And then we're going to get into college baseball. Yeah, you know, I, you know, when I first got out of, of professional baseball, you know, my, my daughter was younger. So I dove into travel softball first, Walter, which I knew zero about, nothing about. But I said, you know what? I'm good with kids. I'm going to learn this game. I'm going to coach it and come up with my daughter and do that. And, and I spent seven years with her and absolutely loved the game of fast pitch softball by the time. We got finished playing, uh, had some really good teams, won a couple national titles in the summer ball two years in a row. And, and uh, 11 of my girls went and played D1 ball, which was really, really cool. Uh, but that was my first taste of parents and travel ball. And um, I'm going to tell you, Walter, I was shocked. I was shocked at the parents that, uh, you know, are kind of tough to get along with sometimes that think that, you know, and look, this, and I don't mean this in an ugly way at all, but but there's some crazy parents out there. Let me be honest, because I, I mean, I've always called it the way I see it, but there's some nutso parents out there. And I, I don't think the parents fully understand what this is about. And, you know, to me, if you're not having fun as a kid and you're not with a coach that's, that, that you're that you're having fun with, I mean, the game of baseball has to be fun. I remember. When I was five years old, I didn't pick up a baseball when I was five years old to think I was going to make a million bucks playing baseball. I picked the baseball up because I loved the game. It, it excited me. It was fun, just like football was, just like basketball was. And I didn't play sports when I was little thinking I was going to play professionally. Well, now I picked it up because I, I loved to do it. It was fun. It was something to do and hanging out with my buddies. And now I feel like travel ball, while it has its place, Walter, Gosh, Lee, it left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth at at times from some of the coaches that I saw, from some of the parents that I saw, the way some kids were being used and some way some kids were being coached out there. And so I like it. I think there's a place for it. But I would tell every parent out there to be patient. Go through the process with your kid. And and I'm going to tell you a quick story about my kid. My kid never showed and it killed me, Walter. But my son never showed an interest in baseball when we were young. All his buddies were going off and playing travel ball, and we were sitting at home and playing a little bit of rec ball around the house because that's all my boy wanted to do. And I made some mistakes with my daughter coaching her first. I pushed her really hard, uh, but she was a lot like me. She could respond to that kind of stuff, and I pushed her, but I probably pushed her more than I should have, Walter. And so I learned a lot about my first kid. Um, thank God she ended up being a wonderful young lady, and she is today at 25 years old, and she overcame me in a lot of ways, but I wasn't going to make that mistake with my son. So I said, you know what? He's got enough pressure on him as it is because of his last name. And I'm just going to let him be him. And we sat back and 
nine-year-old ball went by, 10-year-old ball, 11-year-old ball, and, and all his buddies are playing travel ball. They're doing the 60 games a year, and it's nuts. And I'm playing rec ball. We're playing 12 games a year, just kind of hanging out, doing a little fishing and whatever he wants to. And then finally, at, at 13 years old, he comes to me and he goes, Dad, I think I'm ready to play travel ball. I said, great. Well, well let's do it. And we got on with the team. Then we started our own team, and we did that for the next five or six years. And the funny story is, is my son was not the most athletic, and he was not the most interested in it. But you know what? That was okay because I was okay with it. But he caught up, Walter, and he caught up in a lot of ways. And when all of his buddies kind of fused out or, or, or in, in high school, Jace was just really getting excited about the game of baseball. And he was one of the few that went on to play college baseball. You know, he's playing junior college ball, as you mentioned, and uh, over in the LSUE, and they have a wonderful program on the national title last year. So for all you parents out there that, you think your kid's not going to be what he is early on and you see others that are passing him up, I would tell you, don't panic. Just don't panic and let him go at his speed. Push him a little bit, but let him be him and let him figure out what he wants to be or she wants to be and then kind of pursue that because I made some mistakes with my, my daughter early. Uh, and not serious mistakes, but a little bit of mistakes. The first time you parent in sports, you know, you, you, I think you, everybody makes a little bit of mistakes, but I also learned in a lot of ways too about pushing kids and who you could push and who you couldn't. And look, kids are different today. And in my time and your time, Walter, we were, we were raised with an iron fist. It was going to be this way, this way we're going to do it. It's not, it's not like that anymore. And everybody's a little bit different. I think the great coaches that are out there today are the ones that are figuring out the buttons to push on certain kids to really get them to respond. Now on that note, I want to bring to everybody's attention in a, in a hotly debated subject with regard to multiple sports you went to LSU on a basketball scholarship so obviously you could play a little hoop play a little ball play a little baseball but you must have been a well-rounded athlete growing up can you speak to the the focus that that parents put on this 12 month a year cycle of have to be all in or have to buy into the all year round baseball dynamic that a lot of these children live in today yeah, you know, Walter, that's the biggest crud I've ever heard, you know, and I'm going to tell any parent out there, I'm being honest with you as I can be. If you're trying to specialize your kid at a young age in one sport, you're making a big mistake. I'm just going to be honest with you. You're not missing out on anything. Quantity is not better than quality. I'm just going to tell you, because people used to tell me all the time, see, there wasn't no travel ball when I played, when I was coming up. We didn't have travel ball. They'd say, well, well how many games a year did, did, did you play in baseball every year? to make it to the major leagues. I said, you want to be honest with you? They said, yeah. I said, I played 12 games a year. I said, I played 12 regular season games a year at the local parks out here. And then if we made the all-star team, which I was good enough every year to make the all-star team, then we get to go to the district tournament. If you win your district tournament, you are rewarded to going to state. If you win your state tournament, then you get to go to regionals. And if you win your regionals, you get to go to the Babe Ruth World Series. And so we would average about, 20, 22 games a year. That's all I ever played in baseball. That was it every year growing up. Now, the difference is I played 100 games in my backyard every year of tape ball, cup ball, tennis ball, wiffle ball. That's where I really learned my skills in baseball was in the backyard, figured out how to take a tennis ball and make it move a little bit, how to throw a change up in the backyard with kids uh, batting with aluminum bats, and how to take a wiffle ball and make it move a little bit to miss some bats. That's where I learned the game. But I would tell you this. I was tall, uncoordinated. Basketball taught me agility. It taught my footwork at 8, 9, 10, 12 years old. It taught me how to get a little bit more mature, if you will. I was very clumsy. It was good. Uh, basketball, rather. Basketball taught me that. Football taught me toughness. You know, to play the game of football like I did growing up for all the way through high school, it taught me how to get tough. You, you get hit a few times. Well, you learn how to hit back. You get tough in some ways. And so – each sport that I played taught me a little bit more. It helped me mature. It helped me with my coordination in a lot of ways. And I hate to see the parents are saying, well, Johnny's 12 years old, man, and, and Johnny's sport is baseball, and Johnny's going to play baseball 12 months out of the year. And, I, and it, it makes me sick to my stomach to hear some people say that because Johnny is going to get burnt out. I'm just going to tell you, I saw it with some of my girls that played a lot. Uh, I saw it with some of the boys that when, when we weren't playing travel ball when I was coaching, they would go pick up and play with other kids. on the way. I purposely played every other weekend because I didn't want to kill the parents. 
I knew how expensive it was. And I didn't want to overdo it with our kids when we were coming up because I don't think you have to play every weekend. You just don't. Um, but some of them would go pick up and play with other teams on the weekend when we weren't playing. I didn't agree with it, but, hey, uh, you know, if you want to do that, fine, go do it. But I saw some kids just really fuse out at the end, and I think it was just from too much ball. But I would encourage you to get your kids in as many sports as you can. Let them do what they want to do. Hang out with their buddies. And if they like it, great. And uh, each sport will teach you a little bit more. But basketball was my favorite sport growing up. And I, I was recruited heavily out of high school to play basketball. And um, with the intent of playing baseball, too, of course. And baseball eventually won out. When I got to school, the, the velocity really, really picked up when I got over to LSU. And I knew that was probably going to be my ticket if I was going to make it to professional level was going to be baseball. But I loved the game of basketball. And I loved the game of football as well. Okay, so the question that just came in is, do you know Shaquille O'Neal? I got to get that one in because I'm going to be moving <laughs> yeah. on from basketball. I, I know the big fella. I, I've talked to the big fella a good bit. I just missed him over at LSU, by the way. It was uh, Chris Jackson came the year after I quit playing, uh, which is Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf now. And, of course, then Shaq and Stanley Roberts was a year after him, you know. And so uh, I miss – I would have loved to play with Shaq, I'll be honest with you, because I, I played on the outside on the perimeter, and so I would love to dump it into the big fella and have him kick it out to me where I can knock down some threes, you know. <laughs> but uh, he, he's he's a good dude. Like, he's as good a dude as there is, you know. And uh, just a big old funny, lovable guy that was a hell of a basketball player. So Dale Brown, I mean, you go back and look at the coaches that you had, you know, at LSU and, you know, they're, they're really dynamic, you know, looking back and, you know, we look at Skip Bertman and, and, and all the things that he was basically one of the Mount Rushmore coaches of, of, of the him and Ron Frazier, I guess we could say were the two pioneers. Can you talk a little bit about the SEC with regard to how far it has come along the, the teams that have been added just the environment with regard to baseball in an SEC conference. Yeah, you know, when, when I was coming out of high school, Walter, Mississippi State had the program. I mean, they had Ron Polk. And of course, there was Raphael Palomero, Will Clark, uh, Jeff Brantley, and Bobby Thigpen. Not just four big leaguers, but four big league all-stars, two guys of which could very well be Hall of Famers one day. Uh, and they were the program. Like, like I grew up watching Mississippi State. LSU was never very good in, in when I was in my early days, you know, as a 12 or 13 or 14-year-old, but it was always Mississippi State that you heard about. And there were three schools I really had narrowed my choices down to, which was Texas, University of Texas, Mississippi State that I visited, and, of course, LSU because I lived 20 minutes away. And uh, Ron Polk came down and recruited me and and brought the basketball coach, and it was a big deal. And, and, and look, I, I was really close. I was considering Mississippi State. But then LSU hired a coach by the name of Skip Berkman, and nobody knew who he was around here. And then all of a sudden, my senior year in high school, they make it to the College World Series uh, for the first time. And I go, oh, maybe this Berkman guy's got a chance to be okay at LSU. You know what? I think I'm going to go to LSU. And, of course, five national championships later. But I've kind of seen it grow from the ground up, the SEC, and from the ballparks when in the late 80s when I played the crowds in the late 80s to how we've seen it kind of grow to what it is, the monster that it is today. Uh, it all began with, with Ron Polk. And I think, he, you know, he's kind of the godfather of SEC baseball in a lot of ways. And we know that, that Skip Berkman took it to a whole different level, you know, during his time and really put the SEC uh, uh, on the map, really like Ron Polk did. and took it to a different space and made it a, a national conference in some ways you know to to where it is today and i saw some of the attendance records from this past week and i think florida set a attendance record i think old miss set a three-game attendance record uh some other mississippi state had lord knows how many there lsu had some good crowds and to see you know it, you go back 20 30 years you could have never imagined that it would be thirteen thousand fans in an sec opening weekend or an sec baseball game but that's where it's at now and walter the facilities now are un real like there wasn't even locker rooms in my time in some places to even go dress we had to dress at the hotel and come ready to play and now it's state of the art at Ole Miss and Mississippi State Vanderbilt and LSU and Arkansas it's just it's a, it's an arm race in some ways it just keeps on going you know and uh, I'm happy for college baseball it continues to grow in leaps and bounds I'm happy for the SEC and you know I'm happy for baseball as a whole I, I think it's in a 
a pretty good place right now. Obviously, the NCAA, and this is a whole different topic, but the NCAA needs to step up. And and 11.7, and, and we've been hollering for years, and two full-time paid assistant coaches is ridiculous because college baseball is growing in leaps and bounds. And for the NCAA to be sitting on their hands like they are right now is ridiculous, in my opinion, and it's time for them to step up and reward college baseball. I was just going to go down that path, and you beat me to it. So do you see a lot of the, uh, the – with the it's the interest of college baseball now with the advent and the resurgence or the surgence of travel baseball, the emphasis now with the draft, major league draft, kind of almost pushing student-athletes to the draft. They cut down the number of rounds. They cut down the number of minor league teams. So – you know, the number of students that can, uh, you know, kind of get pushed into that funnel of college baseball. Do you ever see where you're going to have larger coaching staffs, maybe uh, more student athletes on teams, uh, you know, roster spots increasing? Do you see any of that, those types of changes coming down uh, the road here in the not too distant future? I think so. I mean, last year, because of COVID, we had unlimited roster space in D1 baseball, you know, and it made sense because everybody got a year back from COVID that warranted it. And then you had a five round draft, which you're referring to a couple of years ago, which really sent a ton of kids back to school, you know, and a lot of kids that would have went on and played pro ball that would have got drafted in the 10th, 12th, 15th, 20th round. It would have went ends up back on campus. And that's why we have some older teams last year we got some older teams this year as well because of that I think we had a 20 a 20 round draft you know last year but uh, the trend that we are seeing Walter is we're starting to see more of our superstars kids that used to be can't miss that are going to go to play pro ball at a high school are starting to end up in some cases on college campuses and that's really cool I, I don't know if it's the NIL thing I don't think that's what it is in baseball I just think that some kids are starting to look at it and say you know what Instead of going to rookie ball and riding buses all the time and playing in front of 500 fans on a good day, why wouldn't I go play big-time college baseball, whether that's in the you know, the Pac-12 or the ACC or especially the SEC, where I can literally play in front of 10,000, 11,000 every night. It's, it's the equivalent, in my opinion, of, of, of high-A baseball or even higher at times on a Friday night when you get two real studs going at it on the mound. And, and to, to get some of your education and to play in front of that environment, I think people are starting to say, you know what, college baseball is a good choice. You know, now if you get offered five million dollars out of high school, as big a college fan as I am, I can't tell you to turn that down. Not in my right mind, I can't tell you to turn that down. Uh, but some of these fringe players, fringe first rounders, and and you know, if you come from a family that's not really hurting at the time, and 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 you got a little bit of money saved up, and and your kid can go to school, hey. We've seen the JT Gins and, and others, you know, it seems like Vanderbilt with, you know, Leiter and, and, and Kumar last year. I know Kumar, both of those guys turned down a bunch of money, but wanted the college experience, wanted that Vanderbilt experience, you know. Dylan Cruz is at LSU right now. He's a can't-miss top five pick in the first round uh, next year. He turned down a lot of money. It goes on and on. I mean, there's there's one on every team now that seems like it's turning down big, big money. And every situation is different. I get that, you know. If your family, if you're in bad shape and – you know, you, you got to go, hey, I get that, man. But if, if you're doing okay and you want that college experience and you want to gamble on yourself a little bit and say, you know what, a million and a half bucks is a lot of money. It is to anybody. But you know what, I might go to school for three years here, get to have that college experience, get some of my education. And you know what, I'd be triple or quadruple my my signing bonus. And I think you're starting to see some of these kids gamble on themselves because they want that college experience. As a pitcher and a parent of a pitcher, can you talk about the uh, all year round with regard to pitching and competing? Can you talk to the possible injuries that could come from that? It's always always positive to be playing catch and, and playing it. We've talked about multiple sports, but we have a couple parents that are asking that their children seem to be pitching, playing baseball from February through the end of November. And they are worried that there's a, a train wreck that could be headed their way. Can you just talk about pitching and your preparation, your son's preparation, when he puts the ball down, when you used to put the ball down, and some of the things that you can keep your arm healthy without having to compete all year round? Uh, those are some great questions. And, you know, it, it seems to be ever-evolving 
on, on that end on what we think is the right amount or too much or not enough. I, I will say this. I think if you're pitching year round, I think that's a mistake. I'm okay. As you mentioned, Walter, there's a difference between play and catch and pitching and performing. Um, I was a kid that never really put the ball down a long time, but you know, when I was playing basketball, I was at least out playing a little catch. I wasn't pitching, but I was playing catch. When I was playing football, I'd pick up the ball and play a little catch just to keep the old arm moving a little bit. I do not like the kids that pitch year-round. I think the arm needs a good three months of rest in there, maybe four months of rest when you're young. Because, I mean, I think you can go back and look. Look, when you're 12 years old, you know, I don't think you should throw more than 30 innings a year. I think that that's enough for you. You know, I, I see too many kids and I had too many kids with arm up troubles. I was lucky not to have those. And look, Walter, I lost a lot of ball games as a travel ball coach because I would not put my aces back in the ball game because I wasn't going to do it to them. Uh, it wasn't that important to me to win a Sunday championship out here at the U-Triple-S-A level at 11-year-old ball. Like, who cares? I don't care. I'm not going to sacrifice some kid that threw – you know, 60 pitches for me the day before. I told him that's all you're going to throw this whole tournament is 60. I'm not going to bring him back in and win a ball game. Could have done it, but I wasn't going to do that. I see that a lot in travel ball right now, you know, and I see a lot of kids with injuries right now too. So I'm going to be honest with the parents. You have to take care of your own kid's arm. You have to be responsible for that. You hope, and I would encourage you to find a coach that's going to take care of your kid. But if he's not, then you're going to have to take care of your kid. And I had to do it in high school. I had to do it with Jason's high school coach. I didn't come take him out of a ball game and I hated to do it, but and, and I didn't want to be the crazy parent, but it was the first start of the year and it was February and they hadn't thrown more than 40 pitches in an inter-squad game. And my boy got up to 80 pitches in the first game on a cold night in February. And I had to go up to the dugout and say, take my boy out of the game. I want him out of the game right now, but, but it's two to one. I don't care what the score is. That's not what's important right now. Now we get to the state championship game. Maybe after he's worked it up and built it up a little bit. Okay. We'll, we'll consider that. But the first start of the year, no, that's not going to happen. So you have to police your own kid in some ways, unfortunately, because that's the world we live in now. And I hope that you, you know, if you have a kid that's showing a lot of promise, get him on a team that has a lot of other kids that are showing promise too. That way he's not the one horse on the team and there's a lot of horses on the team and it all gets divided up, but you got to take care of your own arm. Walter, I learned that the hard way. And I'm not going to say the hard way and uh, what I'll say is I was a product of my time where, you know, we threw a bunch at LSU and didn't know quite know what we know today. And I would throw nine innings on Saturday and close on Sunday. I did that five different times at LSU, you know, and through high school, you know, where you throw back-to-back seven-inning games. You throw through a game in high school, all 13 innings of a state semifinal game, through 221 pitches in one night, uh, came back the next day and closed the game out. And, you know, the state championship game. And you just don't know, you know, you're a competitor and you say, hey, give me the ball. I want to go pitch. And the coach asks, hey, can you go? And you say, you're dang right, I can go. And Because that's the competitor in you. You know, you want the ball in those situations. When, you know, and, and, and I'll tell people this, Skip Bertman came to me uh, last year and he said, I want to talk to you. And I told him I was going to tell this story one day and I will. And he was almost in tears and, and I was too. And he's like, I just want you to know something. I said, coach, what, what's going on? He goes, I probably overused you at LSU. And I was like, coach, th- th- look, this is water under the bridge. You know, I was like, I don't have any regrets about that. I, I was a competitor. I wanted to go pitch. And, and not many people know this, Walter, but between my sophomore year at LSU, straight to the Olympics, and then back to LSU, I logged 356 innings in 16 months as a 19-year-old. 356 innings in 16-month period between junior year, sophomore year at LSU, straight to the Olympics, right back to my junior year at LSU. Uh, That's a lot. That's a lot. Did it lead to my breakdown after nine years? Probably. Uh, But people say, would you do it any different? I go, I wouldn't do it any different. I loved every pitch I ever threw. I was a competitor. We just didn't know it. I tell people all the time, I wasn't abused I was a product of my time back then that's what there were other college pitchers doing the same thing and now we know more and you know in today's world maybe I get to play 15 years in the big leagues before something happens who knows you know but that's just a product of my time is what I was but you got to take care of your own own arm I would recommend that you take some time off try to play another sport put the baseball down if you're a pitcher I would really stress the cuff weights once you get to be about 
14, 15, 16 years old. I love all the cuff weights that are doing the tubing exercises. I think those are important to strengthen the rotator cuff muscles. They're very, very important. Although I think in today's world, for whatever reason, Walter, and I still haven't figured this out, seems like if nine pitchers go down in today's world, it's all elbow issues. In my time, if nine pitchers went down, it was shoulder issues, you know. And so it's different now than what it used to be. But I do think all those exercises are important for strengthening the shoulder strengthening the elbow and conditioning along the way. But if you're playing another sport, you're probably conditioning uh, as well. So uh, keep it fun, uh, but take care of your kid and make sure he's taking care of himself too. I think that's for me personally, uh, I've been there, lived it. Uh, I, when I speak with parents, I, I try to get parents to understand in the moment, a lot of people probably thought I was a, one of those helicopter dads. Now, I can just tell you that there are parents that are led to believe or coaches will always use the term, your son has a rubber arm. And whenever somebody ah. used to use that with me, I used to always say, he only has one. I don't know if it's rubber or what it's made out of, but he only gets one and I don't want to try to, I don't want to try to replace it because you can't replace it. So uh, sometimes you do have to be your, your, your child's best or most outspoken advocate. So I greatly appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I, no, I, Walter, it's, it's true. And, and I'll make one point to that. Sometimes when you do everything right, it can still go wrong. And that's how delicate throwing a baseball can be. And I said this on TV and people laughed at me about three years ago. Chris Park laughed at me. I said, Pitching a baseball is one of the most high-risk things we do in sports. And he kind of laughed at me at the time. And then we started seeing the rash of injuries that we see now. And I said, you see, it's it's not laughable. It's true. It's one of the most high-risk things we do. And I always use Steven Strasburg as an example. Steven Strasburg was this kid that was taken care of from the time he picked up a baseball when he was 10 years old. He showed promise then. And he never threw too many pitches. And they always did everything they could with him. And yet, he still blew out and have all kind of arm issues along the way. And he's had one hell of a career, but he's had arm issues along the way. So it's a good point to sometimes when you do it all right, it can still go wrong. And that's why you got to take care of yourself the best you can. Well, I think the, the one thing is, is that we all have, every athlete has some sort of, um, you know, balancing act that they're, they're doing. They want to please their coaches. They want to try to please, obviously, their parents. And then they're trying to perform at a level that will get them noticed, uh, social media and so forth. So it's a really high wire act that students in today's world, you know, have to balance a lot of things uh, on. I want to talk about real quick before we go to the Baltimore Warriors, because there's a lot of stories that I absolutely just want people to hear. But while you were at LSU, and while you were pitching on Friday nights, could you have ever envisioned the sport or better yet, the business of baseball becoming what it is today? Meaning we have the television networks, the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12 networks, the Pac-12 networks. We have the travel ball, national tournaments and national showcases and everything that has to do with baseball. Did you ever see this when you were a student ever getting to this level with regard to the sport at the youth level no i i I never saw this coming i I didn't you know and even 15 years ago walter i I didn't see it coming to where almost every game you could watch it you know if you wanted to follow your favorite team it would be streamed i I just didn't see it coming i mean when we were playing back in the late 80s at lsu you know until you made it to the college world series you were lucky to be on tv maybe twice a year, you know, we'd be on ESPN or ESPN two in a regular, big regular season game. We'd go play Florida state or something like that. We'd, we'd maybe make the TV and it was a big deal to us back then. Uh, but I could never envision the ballparks, the fans and, you know, just being on type, some type of TV every night. I, I just didn't see it coming. I don't, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if anybody ever did, you know, but the sport just kept growing, you know, it just kept growing and people kept getting interested in it and, it and it continues to grow today. So I think it's wonderful. You know, the players are like, it doesn't even phase the players. Like it was a big deal to us, Walter, to be on TV. And now it's like, Hey, we're nowhere on TV. You know, every game we play is on TV, you know? So it's not a big deal at all to the players today. It's really cool. Well, it does bring an awareness, you know, to all of the programs out there. For instance, earlier today, I was talking with a few college coaches and, 
you know, their, their social media accounts are gaining interest because of, uh, you know, a few of the teams like this weekend, for instance, uh, Liberty uh, at Florida and Bryant at ECU and, you know, Long Beach State. You know, it's becoming – there's a lot more awareness from not just within the baseball community, but just as a sport. So I think that's exciting. And I love your enthusiasm when you talk about, you know, SEC and college baseball in general. But I want to start to let people know – I don't, I don't call them – I call them enjoyable stories because when you think about a guy like Cal Ripken, you think serious, hard-nosed, gritty guy. But, I, you know, parents are always asking me, and the question stems from coaches calling games. But you have told my boys and I a great story about Cal Ripken getting involved with your play calling with a young catcher with the Orioles in your rookie year. And I just want parents to kind of get some insight about what seasoned players can provide to younger players. And I want you to share that story of Cal coming in to call some of your pitches. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, you know, I was like a lot of college pitchers out there, you know, get Bergman called every pitch I ever threw. In college, you know, and I get it. You know, I see both sides of it. I, does it hurt the development of pitchers going forward to the minor leagues and pro ball? Yes, it probably does. But also, you got to remember, you're dealing with a student athlete, a kid that's got 15 hours a semester that he's trying to go to school. He doesn't have time to study every hitter out there. That's the coach's job to do that. So it makes sense, in my opinion, for the pitching coaches to call the pitches with the understanding that the kid has a right or the pitcher has a right. If he doesn't feel comfortable with that particular pitch to shake it off and throw the pitch that he wants to, I'm okay with that because I think the coaches have a longer chance of studying these hitters and scouting reports and being able to best figure out how to get guys out. Now, having said that I got drafted in, in 89, I was 21 years old and I spent 10 days in the minor leagues, and I went straight to the big leagues at 21 years old and got a September call-up. Uh, got to the big leagues and had not a clue of how to use the stuff that I had because I'd never called my own pitch before. Uh, and so that was an experience. So I fought through a little bit of time I spent in 89. I only got like 10 innings in out of the bullpen, and we were in a pennant race at the time, so I didn't get to pitch very uh, much in, in any high-leverage-type situations. And then 1990 rolled around, and kind of the same thing, and – and had some struggles along the way. Then finally, like in, in 91, Cal Ripken, me and Chris, Chris Hoyles had gotten called up. He was a young catcher. And of course I was still trying to figure out, had not a clue. And me and Chris Hoyles was in the locker room after a game. And I think I'd, I'd gotten beat around. I gave like five runs and six innings or something. And we're back there after the game. And me and him was just sitting, sitting around drinking a beer after the game in the clubhouse, you know, and woe is me kind of stuff. I'm trying to figure it out and talking to Chris and Rifkin walks by and he goes, he's on his way out, you know, going home and he goes, sticks his head in. He goes, Hey, I said, what's up, Rip? He goes, you boys don't have a clue, do you? And I went, no, sir, Mr. Rifkin, I don't have a clue of how to, how to use my stuff. He said, I can see that. He said, I tell you what, he said, he, he grabbed a beard. He sat down with us. He said, this, this is what we're going to do. If y'all want to do it, if you don't want to do it, I'm okay with it. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to help you, with your game. I said, perfect. I said, that's great. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to stand out at shortstop and me and Chris here, we'll figure out some signs that I'll, I'll hold my glove out at shortstop or I'll touch on my, on my chest or where, what pitch it's going to be in the location and all that. And you just, you just do your thing. And, and then we'll sit down and have a beer after every game. And we'll talk about why through Paul Malter or Dave Winfield or Wade Boggs or whoever it is, why we pitched this guy like this in this certain situation and why we didn't. I said, perfect. So the funniest thing, Walter, I'm staring in, if you can imagine, I'm looking right at Chris Hoyles, the catcher for the Orioles, and I'm waiting for him to put down a finger. And I can see him looking through his mask. He's looking at me, but he's not really looking at me. He's looking over my right shoulder where Rifkin is standing at shortstop. And he was getting the pitch from Rifkin and the location. Then he would signal it to me, and I pitched. This went on the entire year. And he said, look, the only way I'm going to do this is if it stays in this triangle right here. The first time the manager knows about it or the pitching coach knows about it, I'm out. And he said, I, I don't want anything to do with it, but it's going to stay right here between us three. I said, yes, sir, it sure will. And look, I started having success, and we would sit down after a game, and he started explaining things to me because Cal had been in the league about 10 years. He knew every hitter inside and out, up and down, how to pitch them, what they look for in certain situations. And it, Cal taught me so much 
just sitting down after a game, visiting with him about certain guys and how certain hitters look for certain pitches with runners in scoring position and how they look for certain pitches when it's nobody on base. And that never clicked with me until he said that. And he said, we're not going to pitch Paul Molitor the same way with two out and nobody on that we're going to pitch Paul Molitor when there's runners on second and third and we're ahead by one run, it's two out. We're going to pitch him a totally different way. And I went, gosh, that's genius. I never thought about that, but it was so true. And he was, the point was, was listen, if you're up five to one in the eighth and Paul Mahler steps to the plate and nobody's on pitch him to his strengths. So what if he gets a double in the gap or even if he gets a home run, who cares? Make him think that's the way you want to try to get him out. And then when it matters the most and the winning runs out at second base and there's two out in the seventh and we got to get out of a big jam, then we're going to pitch him a different way to get him out. And I went, oh, my gosh, I never thought about that before. And so all of a sudden, after a year with Cal doing that, talking after every start, the light bulb started to flicker a little bit for me. And I went, ah, yeah. And I, oh, I'm thinking along going, it's fastball away right here. Well, here comes the sign, fastball away. And I'm thinking, breaking ball away. Yes, sir. There it is, breaking ball away. So now I'm starting to think right along with Cal. And when the season was over, he came to me. He said, listen, you're going to learn every time you go out there, but I don't need to be involved anymore. He said, you've got it figured out to, to where I want you to be right now. Now you figure the rest out on your own. And that was a learning experience for me. And thank gosh for Cal Ripping because he really sped up my maturing process because I didn't have the luxury of the minor leagues and being able to go fail and kind of figure all that out of my first experience was big leagues in front of 45,000 people and trying to figure it out. And that's not a good feeling, Walter, because I'm going to be honest with you, as talented as I was come out of college, there was plenty of nights I went home and banged my head up against a wall wondering why I couldn't consistently get big league hitters out. It was a tough time for me. It really was. Uh, but I also felt like from a mental standpoint, I was tough enough. While it was not easy, it was, I was tough enough mentally to be able to accept it and push forward and, and be better for it you know, down the road. And so I was glad to be in the big leagues struggling at times. I would rather have been in the minor leagues learning how to pitch, if you will, you know, but he was a good man, still is a great guy today. I stay in touch with him and he changed my career. And then Rick Sutcliffe came along after the year later and took it to a whole different place, you know, but uh, junior was a big part of my, of my career. Well, I certainly would love to have uh, a certain young man uh, out on the West Coast working with a guy like you and, and, and Mr. Sutcliffe. But uh, I want to ask you as a pitcher, the high school, college, and, and major league level, let's talk about the strike zone a little bit. And, you know, I want to get parents and student athletes that pitch to understand the words poise and composure. Can you just talk about the temperament of a pitcher you know, when you feel like you're in the zone, you're working and you're trying to earn the, those strikes, kind of talk about how to navigate those tight zones and the, how, the bad plays that might get made behind you and being a pitcher mentally in a game, what that mindset has to be like. Well, I mean, I was – and look, I didn't learn this until I got to the big league level in my early 20s. And, and Rick Sutcliffe told me one time, you can only control the things that you can control. And so once the ball comes out of my hands, I no longer control anything unless it's hit back to me, and then I do control that. But past that, I can't control whether the shortstop catches the ball. I can't control whether the second baseman makes a good throw over the first base. I can't control whether the gets a good jump or not. But what I can control is my emotions. And when I let my emotions get out of check is when I get out of my ball game. And so I see that, and it's only normal for a lot of young kids that, are pitching their guts out and I get that and somebody kicks a ball behind them and all of a sudden they get upset and it upsets their game and then all of a sudden things start to get sideways a little bit so I learned that in the professional level that worry and look baseball is a team sport but sometimes it's also a selfish sport in a way that you got to look at your job sometimes and say you know what I control my what I do this is my job I'm going to do my job today no matter what happens behind me. Because there's going to be times where your defensive guy, while he kicked one one game, the next five days later, he may make a great play for you. So don't do any good to holler and scream and get on your teammates. That that never has solved anything. You want to pull a guy to the side every now and then and, and meet with him individually and say, hey, whatever, I don't think you're, you know, you're, you're, you're all in like I'm all in. Let, let's be all in together. But never embarrass a teammate 
take him, pull him to the side and talk to him. That was what I always recommend to, to kids to be able to do those kinds of things. But always just try to control my emotions to keep my emotions in check because the game begins to speed up in a lot of ways, Walter. And, and you know this, when you go from, from uh, you know, junior high, you get into high school, the game speeds up. It speeds up in, in college a lot too. And then when you make that transition to pro ball, the game really speeds up. And <clears throat> Rick Sutcliffe taught me an old trick. He said, when things start to speed up and get a little bit sideways, I want you to call a timeout. I want you to step off the back of the mound. I want you to untie your shoe. Bend over, untie your shoe. Then I want you to tie it back. And while you're doing all that, you start thinking about, okay, let's get back to the basics. Let's get back to, okay, I've just walked a guy through four straight balls. What am I feeling mechanically? How can I fix it? Okay, I know how I can fix it now. Now let's go do it. And so that was always my little thing. You could probably pull up some videos of me pitching when things were going sideways. I'd back off the back of the mound, call time, sit down and untie my shoe and sit there and take my time and tie it back and kind of hit the reset button a little bit. I think you got to be able to, as a pitcher, to kind of hit the reset button and just focus and zone it right back in when you can. That was always my little mechanism of doing those kinds of things was stepping off and doing that. And I felt like it worked for me to kind of hit the reset button from time to time. I'm going to – a lot of questions are booming in here. I mean, I'm literally getting about three questions a minute, so I'm going to fire them all off if we can. Who was your toughest out in the big leagues? Who who would you say was a few of the hitters that just gave you the darndest time, you know, as far as hitting is concerned? You know, Walter, I was a reverse splits guy. And so as crazy as it sounds, being right-handed, sometimes I'd walk a left-hand, uh, a right-hander to face a left-hander. I really would. Um and so a lot of the guys that hit me well were not left-handed. They were right-handed guys. So like Joe Carter wore me out. Ricky Henderson gave me fits. Um, I'll tell you a story about Ricky right quick. I got so mad at Ricky, I couldn't get him out. So you say, I said, you know what? He just comes down on top of the plate and stare at you. And I was a 22-year-old kid. He's trying to take advantage of me. And I said, I had enough. So I said, I'm throwing a fastball in. It had bad intentions. And I mean, I cut it loose as hard as I could throw it, probably about 97. And I just flipped him. I didn't hit him, but I flipped him. I mean, the first thing hit the ground was his, was his shoulder blades and his helmet flew off. And, oh, I stuck my old chest out. I felt pretty good. I was like, now, Ricky, now you dig in. Well, the next pitch, Bob Melvin calls, which is the manager now in the big league ball, he calls a curveball. Well, I hang a curveball, and Ricky hits it like 420 feet to left center field. So it's kind of like a Bull Durham moment, you know, with Nuke Deluge, Kevin Koshner comes out and so Fomel brings the ball out to him and he goes, listen, love it. Love what you did. But Ricky's one of those guys you just don't want to ever wake up. And I was like, now you tell me after I woke him up, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, you learn certain guys and you learn certain things you can get away with and what you can't get away with. But Joe Carter, Ricky Henderson uh, hit me. Oh, Paul Molitor gave me fits too. All pretty good hitters in their own day, right? I mean, they're pretty good hitters from the right side of the plate, but those guys gave me fits. Was there a favorite ballpark that you enjoyed pitching in or one you didn't particularly like pitching in? Uh, I'll give you an example of both. Uh, Anaheim loved. It didn't matter who was in the lineup. I always felt great out in Anaheim. I think, that you know, look, how can you beat the weather out there? You know, I mean, I was a Louisiana boy, still am. Never really went out to the West Coast before. I never went to the West Coast until I started playing Major League Baseball. Uh, never hardly got on the airplane before I started playing Major League Baseball. And so, man, you go out to uh, Anaheim and it's, what, 78 degrees, zero humidity, sunshine. You feel like you can just pitch all night. I had some really good games there. Um, I had no love at all, Walter, for – the old Seattle Kingdom. I, that place was just a dump to me. You know, you never could tell if it was raining outside or sunshine. I didn't like the Metrodome either. I, I just wasn't a big dome fan. You know, I grew up playing on grass. Not to mention when you got to go to the Seattle and there's Jay Buhner and Edgar Martinez and Ken Griffey Jr. and so on and so forth. It's a pretty tough lineup to face when you go in there too. But, yeah, any dome stadium I was not a fan of. Okay, do you have a um, a manager or a pitching coach that, you know, you kind of still use their words of wisdom to with your son, with Jace, or anybody that kind of stuck with you over the years other than Coach Bertman, just a, a professional coach uh, that may have uh, taught you things that you're passing on now? Yeah, I mean, Dick Bosman was really big in, in, in 
my early years in Baltimore, he was a pitching coach there. And then old Don Rowe was a pitching coach from Milwaukee. And I, I wish I'd have had Don a little earlier in my career because he, he simplified things. You know, Don was a guy that – Walter, I was, I was a little bit of a nutcake in some ways. Like, I couldn't leave the bullpen until it felt right for me. And sometimes – well, I'd say that most of the time I threw too many pitches in the bullpen. And I was well – I was seven years into my big league career when I got with Milwaukee and, and Don Rowe, and he comes to me after the first start. He goes, Jesus, he goes, you, you, you threw 100 pitches warming up, Ben. And I went, how many? He said, 100. I went, oh, my gosh. He said, yeah. He said, I'll tell you what we're going to start doing. When you get on this mound right here, after you've played long toss, you've got 45 pitches. Do whatever you want to do in these 45 pitches, and we're getting the hell off the mound. And I went, seriously? And he said, yeah, because you're not going to have anything left. I said, I said, but I, I said, Don, I've been doing it like this for seven years. And he said, that's right. And you've been doing it the wrong way for seven years. That's what he told me. So I started cutting down my warm-up time. He said, you got to remember, Ben, the bullpen before the game is a warm-up. It doesn't have to be perfect. And I it, I was well into my big league career before I figured that out because there was games I remember in Baltimore in the early years where I left the, the, uh, the bullpen before the game going, these guys are in trouble today. Like I'm fixing to throw up some zeros on the scoreboard. They're in trouble. And you're in the shower in the fourth inning. And there were some times I left the bullpen in Baltimore going, Oh my gosh, I can't break the speed limit today. I have no idea where it's going. And I'm facing the Cleveland Indians with Eddie Murray and Albert Bell and Vierga and all these great players. And all of a sudden you look up in the seventh inning and you're cruising along in the seventh inning, you give up one run, you know, and that's when I learned it. What you do in this bullpen is just a warm-up. It has no bearing on what happens in the ballgame because the bullpen mound is totally different than the game mound. And the adrenaline flow that you get when a game starts, and they say play ball, the batter steps in the box, the start pitcher, is nothing that you can duplicate in that bullpen no matter how hard you try before a game. And it took me a long time to figure that out. So after that, I said, you know what, 45, 50 pitches, no matter how it's going, I'm out of the ballgame. I mean, I'm headed up to the dugout to go into the ball game to pitch. And that's what I started doing. And it worked, Walter. Yeah, I felt much fresher. I had more on the ball. Uh, I wish somebody would have told me that earlier, but nobody ever did. Okay, this past weekend, we saw Vanderbilt Commodores using wristbands or wrist technology. Uh, this is a question. How do you feel about the – coaches from the dugout sending in signals to the catcher and to the pitcher and the cards that some of the big leaguers or college guys hold in their back pockets. Do you think it's gotten a little carried away? <laughs> Walter, for me, I think it's, it's gotten a little carried away. I, I really do. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, Apple watches or whatever, you know, I, I just, you know, maybe you got an NIL contract with Apple or something. I don't get it. You know, I just, in a time where we're trying to teach our kids how to play the game as much as we can, you know, I think we should be able to look, if they can't pick up signs from the dugout and certain things that we're trying to do, then I think we're holding them back a lot of ways, you know, and I, you know, I don't, I just think it's part of the game where you learn how to pick up signals from the third base coach. You don't need a wristband. You know, it's part of the game that they do at the big league level too. And so I'm not a big fan of that. I guess it has its its moments and it's sometimes maybe it is helpful, but I would, I'm just an old traditionalist in that way, I guess, for the fact that I'm, I'm not a fan of the wristbands. I'm not a fan of the watches. I'm not a fan of those kind of things. Okay. This one's near and dear to my heart. Uh, we have a few folks here that have pitchers. Their children are pitchers. Young man at LSU over the last three years by the name of Landon Marceau. Didn't throw particularly hard, but had great secondary stuff. You're a tall guy. Landon wasn't that big. Can you talk to the smaller pitchers that aren't throwing 98, 99 miles an hour, but that are more, they have the ability to throw uh, breaking pitches and plus counts, and they kind of pitch backwards. Do you see that ever finding a place not only at the college level, but at the big league level. I think it's always got a place at the college level. I, I, you know, if you can command your fastball, meaning you can throw it where you want to throw it, in, away, up, down, move your fastball around, and you can spin your off-speed pitch, your breaking ball, and your changeup in there, there's a place for you in college baseball, and you can win. If you can do that, you can win. You can go back and look at 
you know, the big sexy thing now is throwing hard, this nasty wipeout type stuff, you know, and, and that's exciting to watch too. But what wins ball games in college is being able to pitch, to be a real, not a thrower, but a pitcher. And if you can pitch, then you can absolutely win ball games in college. And, you know, we've gotten in pro ball now where it's about swing and miss. And it's swing and miss this and swing and miss that. And I don't know what happened. I said this on the air about five years ago. I said it almost felt like the two ground balls and a pop-up became a bad inning for a pitcher. You know, when did that become a bad inning? It's almost like we got we got to walk to now and we got to strike out to for it to be a good inning now. If you can throw nine pitches in an inning and get out of the inning with two pop-ups and a ground ball, that's only going to make you that much stronger to work deeper in the ball games now. You know, and so – there is absolutely a place for that. And you can take a guy at the big league level now that has below average fastball, but if you can pitch backwards, as you mentioned, Walter, have a really good change up, be able to command your fastball. Guess what? You can win in pro ball too. You can win in pro. I mean, I can go down the line with Jamie Moyer and Mike Messina, just some of the guys that I played with that didn't have big time, big time arms, but knew how to pitch Jamie Moyer was one of the perfect examples of it. I don't know how many years he played, 20-something years in the big leagues. And, look, he could barely break the speed limit, but he could really pitch, and that's what it's all about. Just want to touch on, you know how I feel about this topic, change-up. Do you feel that it's better to learn the change-up before the breaking ball as a young pitcher? I'm going to assume this question is pertaining to someone younger than 14. Do you think it's yeah. – that changeup, is it a good pitch to be working on as, at the youth level? 100%. That would be the second pitch, and that's the second pitch I always talked to the kids that I coached until we got up to about 14 years old. And then we started messing around with some breaking balls, but not many. You know, And the problem we have in travel ball, Walter, I know you've seen it too, is none of the kids at 11 years old can really hit a breaking ball because it spins a little differently. It's the first time they see it. And all of a sudden you get a kid that, that has a little bit of a breaking ball, and it's not even a good breaking ball. But the guy sitting on the bucket calling the pitches, if the kid throws 70 pitches, he's going to throw 60 breaking balls. He's what he's going to call, 60 breaking balls, because nobody can hit it. And the coach wants to win the ball game. You know, you're not developing that kid. You're hurting that kid by doing that, you know. Uh, and so I've seen that happen a bunch. You know, my teams used to face kids like that, that coach sitting on the bucket, and it was breaking ball, breaking ball, breaking ball, breaking ball, breaking ball. And I'm going, my gosh, yeah, you're getting us out, coach, but – you know what, your your little buddy over there is going to have some problems down the road. You keep doing that to him, you know. And so you got to develop your pitches, but I love to change up. We started with a straight change, not trying to turn it over like a circle change. Just tuck it back in the palm of your hand a little bit. Not a palm ball, but just tuck it back a little bit more and pull that window shade down. And so we're just trying to kill the velocity on it a little bit. That's the pitch that I thought, and it worked wonders. It was a really good pitch to get guys out in front. We pitch that pitch, fastball changeup, fastball changeup, and then turn about 14, and we'd spin a few breaking balls. But to be clear, even when they turned 14 or 15, Walter, if we threw 60 pitches in a game, it was probably 40 fastballs, 10 breaking balls, and 10 changeups, something like that. You know, just kind of mix it up a little bit. You, sir, are talking my language, and I wish uh, we could get more parents to really understand at the youth level that the power of a fastball change-up combination will truly separate your son's ability to pitch beyond, you know, travel baseball. He'll be able to pitch in high school, and he'll probably have an opportunity to pitch at the collegiate level, uh, but unfortunately, as you allude to, we have a lot of ball bucket warriors that love the deuce and, and like to throw it off. And could you, as a dad, discuss when your son or when you were, at what age were you recruited to go to college? I was recruited uh, pretty early, Walter, more about basketball. So probably ninth grade, you know, I was six foot three in ninth grade and, pretty athletic and that's when LSU kind of started looking at me and Dale Brown started coming around a little bit and I'd go to a few basketball camps and other coaches got interested so probably about ninth grade I started to get noticed on the basketball court and on the uh on the baseball field as well um my son was a little bit of a late bloomer Walter and, and like I said he got a late start in travel ball and I just didn't push him and but he continued to get better and he caught up and he got interested in the game and we kept working and all those things. And by his junior year, he was never a big, cause Jason never, 
Jace didn't have that big arm like I had. Like, he had a good little breaking ball. He spotted his fastball well, and he still does, and throws a good changeup, too, uh, that he learned when he was 12 or 13 years old. But he never really had the big-time velo, you know. And so Jace is a mid to upper 80s fastball, and that's really all he was in high school. So he didn't get the looks from the big schools, but he had a lot of junior colleges and smaller schools looking at him, and eventually he chose LSU units where he is right now. When you look around the landscape, and let's talk about this past weekend, I just happened to take a quick peek. When you look around the landscape and you see these top 25, top 30 schools, and we start to see schools like Bryant and Liberty and Old Dominion and Long Beach starting to get into the national equation, what do you say? What what would you say to parents that are always what I call heck bent on P five or bust, which is the new buzz term for college baseball, the Power Five? Can you just talk about how hard it is to play college baseball, and that all schools all across the country, on any given day, can probably compete as we witnessed this past weekend with just about anybody? Yeah, I mean the game. You know, from the late 80s when I played college baseball, legitimately there was probably five schools back then that had a real shot of winning the national title. It was, you know, it was LSU, it was Texas, some of the West Coast teams, you know, that had a real shot of winning it. But in today's world of baseball, because of roster limitations, because of the bats that they changed some years ago, the BB core bat uh, and things like that, it really changed the game and it really evened up a lot of things. And there was never a time where a Bryant, you know, could have won in and beat the number 12 team in the country, you know, and swept them. You know, Long Beach State goes into Mississippi State and, and, and wins two or three, or Liberty goes into Florida and knocks off. And to me, Walter, that's what makes baseball the greatest game in the world. You know, like the Bryant Bulldogs could never go to the number 12 team in football and ever beat them in football. Like, it would never happen. And Liberty could never go to the University of Florida in football. They could play a 1,000 times Walter, and they would never beat the University of Florida at Florida in football. Wouldn't happen. But yet they can find a way in baseball to go beat them two out of three times. And that's what you're seeing now is the game and our game continues to grow, but it's like everybody has an ace and it's tightened up more than it ever has now where these kids are, I think, further along than we've ever seen them. You know, kids are so polished from out of high school now compared to what we were. And you get these kids in there and you develop them a little bit and it's just – it's created a great atmosphere in college baseball. I love tournaments. I love this time of the year, but I also love tournament time when the regionals roll around and number one is playing the number four. And the number one seed is trying to throw off and throw their number two guy, you know, so they can have it for the next game when they, when they win, hopefully win that game, and they got to face the number two seed or whatever. And all of a sudden, the number one from a little team like Liberty just stuffs the number one seed. You know, it happens every year we see it happen. And so – it's the, the competition level, you know, while you go to the big D1 schools and the power fives and maybe they're deeper across the board. But I can remember when Coastal Carolina came in LSU and beat them and went on to win the national title. I can remember when Stony Brook came to LSU some years ago, Stony Brook and knocked off LSU. And you know what? Stony Brook had more players drafted than LSU did that year, Walter, to tell you what kind of team they had that year. So you can, some of these little small schools, mid-majors, if you will, you can create some monsters over there. And I think that's what we saw this weekend is that you better bring your A game every weekend because if you don't, somebody's waiting to knock you off. Well, Ben, I want to, uh, I want to personally, you know how I feel about you, big fella. I mean, just knowing you as a, as the individual, you're honest, you're direct, you're candid, you're, passionate about the sport i love i love listening to you i laugh when i listen to you i learn when i listen to you and, and i know tonight that uh based on all the messages that i'm getting here people are absolutely some of these people never even knew that you called college baseball and now they're probably going to start tuning in hoping that you're uh, calling their game that they're able to listen to so i want to say thank you to you i want to say thank you for for all your enthusiasm with regard to college baseball thank you for joining us tonight um, you know, our hope here when we do these types of events is uh, is pretty much to enlighten parents, not only with the, the travel baseball, the high school and college baseball, it's just to give them some insight, not only how hard the game is, but how fun it can be and how fun it should be. Um, and it, even though it comes across as a big business, it's also a great sport. So 
people like you are are an ambassador to to that type of sentiment, and I, and I really appreciate you taking the time joining us here tonight. Walter, I, I appreciate you having me on, and, and and I'll just leave your your audience that has youngsters out there with a with, with a couple of things. And one, parents enjoy the ride. It, 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 the ride goes by really fast and enjoy your son enjoy your daughter enjoy this experience and make that experience because what you're doing is making memories and you're making memories that are going to last a lifetime i've been out of coaching travel ball for a few years now but i still meet up with some of my girls that i coach and they text message me on on social media and, and text message me and how much fun and they'll bring up certain moments that we had not about championships that we won, but just hanging out and having fun and life experiences. And same thing for the parents, man. Don't be so caught up in this that you're missing the ride and enjoying your son's experience or your daughter's experience. Enjoy that ride because this game of baseball, look, it passes us up and it will pass everybody up at some point in time. And all you're going to have it then when it's all left over is the memories. So enjoy those memories. Uh, you got a wonderful audience, Walter. I appreciate what you do as well for college baseball pro baseball wish your son Tyler the best of luck uh as he continues uh his journey through this thing and it is a very difficult game it is a very very difficult game and that's one of my biggest challenges now by calling games is remembering how difficult it looks easy when I sit up two stories up sometimes I sit over the top of home plate and I look down the game looks easy but I have to always remind myself how difficult of a game this is well, hearing it from somebody such as yourself, I think it puts it into perspective that we want to enjoy not only the process, but the opportunities that have been given to us to meet such great people and surround ourselves with people that enjoy and love the game. And as a parent that's gone through it, I always stress if I the one mistake I made, the one mistake is I was so concerned about the outcome, the destination, meaning to see his way through the college experience and come out on the other side and get an opportunity that he had out of high school that I didn't enjoy the journey enough. And so looking mm -hmm. back, that's one thing I have to live with uh, each and every day that I go to, go to watch and pitch. So parents, I want to, I want to say thank you for joining us tonight, getting an opportunity to hear from somebody uh, like Ben McDonald. It's just a tremendous uh, resource for you as a parent, more importantly for those student athletes that were able to, to, to listen in tonight. It's a great game. It's, it's a beautiful game. It has its ups and its downs. Uh, don't get all hung up in the business side of it. Listen to yourself. Listen to your son. Listen to your body. You know, make the decisions that you feel that are in your best interest at all times moving forward. want to remind everyone uh, that on Sunday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern and on Monday evening on, at 9 p.m. Eastern, we have these Twitter space events, Butch, and myself, Butch Bakla, and myself uh, combined. You know, we have experiences within the game that I feel that are unique, and we want to share those thoughts and perspectives with you. We created our, our platform called The Masters of Baseball, and that's because we want to try to educate parents and players. That's the purpose. That's the meaning of Masters of Baseball. We have our podcasts. We're going to have content from players, uh, from Major League Baseball, college coaches, Major League scouts, coaches. They're going to share their perspective uh, as from a developmental standpoint and also their time in the game uh, and share some insights with you as family. So, again, we want to say thank you to everyone. Give us a follow over at Masters of BB Baseball uh, at Twitter. Follow us on our podcast. They come out after every night's Twitter space the following day. Spread the word. Join us on Sundays and Mondays. Butch Bacala and I myself, thank you and greatly appreciate your time. Have a wonderful night, and we'll see you next week.